Welcome back for episode 47 of Focus Fire Chat, recorded live on August 31st, 2016 on Twitch.tv. Big shout out to the chat here. Thank you so much for spending your evening with us. This is your host, Blue Crew 86 Alongside me, we have the man who it has been said has the voice of a flower, Justin Sane 0516. Apparently the voice of like five flowers, but... <laughs> Okay. Hello. <laughs> Next up is the third member of our merry little band, our friendly neighborhood spokesman for paying, Steeman Will and Beeman. Pay and be with you, children. Now that's over with. I thought we agreed on flowering tree earlier. He's a that's, bouquet. I'll accept that. I'll accept that. <laughs> We also have joining our team officially as a co-host, Mel. So everyone be sure to give her a warm welcome in Discord. Hey guys. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a special person anymore. I'm I'm official. Official. Well, you're just officially special now. Yeah, you're oh, special. Well then. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Let me well re- rework that. <laughs> we also oh have Damoel back. Damo, how's it been? It's great. How's it been going with you? We're we're pretty good. We're looking forward to the conversation tonight. It should be exciting. Yes. Leading me to leading me to talk about the topic of today's chat, which is going to be a look at the lore of sword logic. Before we get into that, however, I do want to run through some quick notes real quick. In our last chat, we took a look at the lore of the Awoken. If you missed that and have any interest in hearing our thoughts, please be sure to check out www.focusfirechat.com for archives of all previous chat, as well as links to all our various other pages. If you don't mind, please give us some feedback on iTunes as well to let us know how we're doing. As many of you already know, Focus Fire Chat is a cross-community gathering where the intent is to offer a week-long in-depth view of a particular subject from within the lore of Destiny and other games. This chat begins every Tuesday morning and runs until the following Tuesday, with topics decided by the group via a poll that begins every Friday and ends on the Tuesday morning of the new chat. Every Wednesday at around 10 p.m. Central, we get together to stream a recap of the previous week's chat for those who are unable to participate. We have also officially joined the Guardian Radio Network. If you're not already listening to all the podcasts over on the guardiansofdestiny.com, please fix that immediately. Guardian Radio and Guardian One are amazing groups, and we are truly honored to join them. Our next chat is going to be a discussion on the stories and tales of all the Crucible maps within Destiny. With that all being said, let's go ahead and dive into the information that we have about the architecture of these spaces, the logic of the sword. And I think that's going to lead us to the introduction introduction. Mm-hmm. Grimoire, which is the Ascendant Sword. And Demo, you want to grab that one real fast? Sure, I can read that off. Okay. Eris, Eris, what a name. A name for Discord, a name for far cold orbits where no living thing should dare go. I like this name. Let me give you a gift, Eris. Let me tell you about the power and the logic of the sword. A shredder or a boomer is a powerful weapon, but it kills acyclically. 
You see, it sends out harm and takes nothing back. The bolt passes away into nothing. A sword, though, a sword is like a bridge, a crossing point. The sword binds wielder to victim. It binds life to death. And when the binding is done, the sword remembers. When the boomer's fire is burnt away into axion and neutrino scatter, the sword goes on, hungrier and sharper. Understand that this nightmare logic underpins his nightmare world, and you will see why the Ascendant Blade has so much power there. Whenever, Wherever in our passage we find ourselves in need of power, remember that the greatest authority here is a blade made keen by eons of use. This is the world the Hyde craves, a universe creased by the edge of the sharpest sword. So the first thing that, you know, I think we've, I think I feel like we've had this conversation on this card before. Um, the first point here is the requirement for the acyclical uh, kill, which um, an acyclical, acyclical, wow, that was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. An acyclical kill is something that is, that is not in a cycle. So when he says that a shredder or a boomer is a powerful weapon, but it kills acyclically, it means that when he kill or when it kills, um, nothing there, there is no return of energy like the sword, you know, in order to kill with a sword, it has to be a melee kill. And so it can, that's, I mean, that's the whole thing is it binds the killer and the killed together and then you know his entire point about the sword remembering because projectiles they burn away you know they they scatter and whereas the sword and a knife or anything of that you know anything with a blade the blade stays it you know it's a constant so i don't i don't mean it's it's a very simplistic portrayal of the beginning of what the logic is here. But it also, I think kind of, um, it kind of introduces the beginning of the philosophy that is the sword logic. Right. So, and yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's my, that's my thoughts on that card. I think, like I said, we've had this, we've had this card pop up a couple of times. So it's kind of an important one in destiny. I wanted to point out the fact that things like the sword, especially for the hive, I think it's about the intimacy. And if you try to catch what I'm saying here, um, of the kill itself, it's like you're saying when you're using a sword or a knife, anything close quarters, it's a lot more personal. It feels like, and um, we've seen in things like Highlander. I think we talked about that when we did, um, the books of sorrow, but I just want to point that out that it could just be like a, it, it's more of a, when it's close quarters, it's a lot more personal. And for them, there's nothing like it. You know, that's a big rush for the hive. Yeah. And I think hurt chain just threw that into chat too. <clears throat> he said, direct killing is more empowering than indirect killing. Believe is that, I mean, I think that's kind of in line with what you're, what you're talking about too for better or yeah more or less it's pretty much it it's just it's direct it's me and you we're we're separated by a blade that's it you know whereas you have like the the boomers like they're saying earlier they shoot it 
it might kill you. Whether it kills you or not, it evaporates. The sword stays there. It stays with the, you know, the blood of its victims on it, as we find out through sword logic, which we'll talk about later, of course. Um, did you want me to go on to the next card, or did anybody else have anything else they want to throw in on there? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, that's actually kind of the that actually exists the intimacy of like hand to hand combat versus killing each other with weapons from a distance. That's actually um, in, in our real world right now, but then this card goes and takes it one step further and kind of brings the, the paracausal elements of sword logic into play in that a real sword. Yeah. Yeah. Killing with a sword versus killing with a, a rifle at range is, is much more intimate, but a real sword will not get sharper as, as it's used. So that's where, that's where sword logic kind of steps outside and, and steps into the paracausal as opposed to, a, you know, as opposed to being in, in the reality of our world as we know it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a nod to the i mean like we i mean yeah the paracausality but i think it's also a nod to this being you know they they refer to it as logic of the sword and remember that all the weapons here are i mean especially the weapons of the ascendant hive are which this is an ascendant sword they are by their very nature not bound to the physical laws right because i mean that's that's always been the other thing is um and i'm i'm completely agreeing with you on that is that the more you use a blade the duller it gets but then here it's like it's it's like you're actually i'm trying to think of the best way to say it it's like you're using death as a whetstone against which to sharpen your blade if that makes sense. So instead instead of using an actual whetstone and actually sharpening the blade manually, you are actually using the process of killing to sharpen that edge. So the it's it's actually it's actually sharpening the more you kill, which is what I think they're saying here. Because remember also, and we'll get into it a little bit later, but remember also that they they ascribe the taking of light as well. Not ju- It's not just the experience of killing, it's actually the knowledge and the power that you gain from that kill. If that, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Emma, did you have something? Yeah. Y- yeah, I wanted to say that uh, my interpretation of the sharpness of the sword actually is that it's metaphorical. Um, in warrior culture, the sword and the soul are often kind of linked, um, particularly Japanese, which I think the hive takes some twisted uh, stances from. So I think that might actually, I mean, it could very well literally refer to the edge of the blade, but my interpretation was that it was actually sharpening the soul of the the killer. Um, I would, that would make sense as well. Yeah. I mean, I can, yeah, actually, now that you say that, that, yeah. That's exactly what I was. I think I was going for. Yeah, because the only example we have of a sword being of true import, realistically, is Oryx's. Whereas the whole of the hive, 
theoretically gain their power from the sword logic, and many of them don't even use blades necessarily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a much more abstract thing, and it it makes sense too that uh, a an, a more intimate kill might sharpen the soul to a far greater degree than just sort of as we said lobbing shots off into the distance, uh, because you have to live with the reality of what you've done and embrace the reality of what you've done. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. You can look into their eyes when you're using the sword. You know. It is kind of a big metaphor for that. Good point. Anybody <laughs> else have anything oh. to put in on the uh, card here? I think we're I think we we've Good to go. I think we've carved enough out of that card. Uh, five, points from, did, five, <laughs> five points from Gryffindor. From, not four. Yeah, from. Oh, man. Detraction. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Oh, you could. Yeah, you should. <laughs> All right, so um, with that, we're moving on to the King's Fall card, correct? I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to carve this one up as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh Here we boy. go. Alrighty. So, King's Fall. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it. I'll just read it first. Where are you going? No, wait. Listen. I was right at first. In the ever-expanding blighted place, even light must obey the sword logic. Even you, guardians, you best and brightest of the dying dawn, you drew blood in honor of the Taken King. The war priest did his duty, and you did yours. Oryx was challenged, yes, but challenged in the way the hive, which is to say that challenge is worship, is challenge, is power, sword logic. You played your part well. You were not supposed to touch the light. How did you find your way into the king's cellars? How did you even recognize that benighted draught for what it was? Do you not know that the hive pursue light precisely for the purpose of devouring with slavering jaws and slick, greedy, gulping throats? How did you take, or rather untake, the blighted light that orcs gathered to offer? offer and sacrifice to Akka and ignite it so that it burned and burned the darkness. It was barely light anymore, but you took it. And when you took it, you did not keep it. You set it free. You fools, you disastrous bumbling squanderers. It's not right. Now, who now shall be the first navigator? Lord of Shapes, Herald God, Taken King. Not you. You might have been kings and queens of the deep, but you have toppled orcs and you have not replaced him. There must be a strongest one. It is the architecture of these spaces. Why are you leaving? And a lot of people, of course, I think everybody can agree that assume this to be Toland, speaking from the, uh, from the Ascendant Realm. Which it's it's not confirmed. It's just something that is assumed because it, he talks a lot like the deep does, and I mean, 
it was pretty mad that we did not take Orcs' throne. We we kind of ruined sword logic by completing the King's Fall raid, if I'm not mistaken. Anybody else's thoughts? I think by completing it in the manner that we did, it it disrupted his plans. And this is actually one of my favorite Grimoire cards because he truly, truly sounds miserable. Um, and I'm not a big Tolan fan for those who... You Tolan hater. <laughs> um... But I do think that this is a really important card because I think that it it plays a huge part in the storytelling of the Taken King in that it belies some elements of the Books of Sorrow, which sort of read like the, the sword logic is infallible, um, I think is a general theme of those. And obviously, if we somehow broke that cycle, then it's not 100% infallible. Um, and I do think that it means that there's a lot more going on at play than we or Toland may have known about um, prior to this event. And I'll pause for interjections there before I monopolize. I think Justin had something to say, it looks like. Yeah, no, I actually actually agree. And I just wanted to ask a question. Who here feels like Toland ends a lots of conversations by saying, why are you leaving? <laughs> <laughs> That's just I think, how I, I see that being his sign-off. <laughs> yeah, I think probably that gets said to everybody but his death singer girlfriend. <laughs> Are you guys hating on Toland? Okay. I mean, no. I'm sorry, but I will interject right here. You, you hating Toland's life. Hating he, he, he life. is mapping out the Ascendant Realm for us, okay? That's a big deal. He's, yeah, it's, I'd really like to see that map. <laughs> he, no, he's, no, I actually... I love this card because it gives us a little bit of insight as to as to kind of the mechanic way that we approached King's Fall. But no, uh, and also when he says, "How did you take, or rather, untake the blighted light?" Um, that's kind of uh, the the whole concept of being able to blight light really intrigues me. And it makes me wonder if that's not the hives end game with the traveler when they finally get it is to, is to kind of convert it into this giant blighted ball, as opposed to what it is, this giant light source. Well, on, on that, I know when we talked a bit, um, I think it was a while ago when we were talking about King's fall. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was in chat, but they made the point of maybe that's our guardian special power is that for some reason from, for some unexplainable reason, we have the ability to purify and free light. And it seems like no one understands how, we do it or why we do it um it's just we do because like even here that's part of the frustration that toland has is like how did you even do this um this light was supposed to be already blighted like you know it's already supposed to be perverted and cursed how did you purify it um and that and that always seems to be the thing that our guardian does is he, you know, he or she goes into these situations and they're like, okay, hey, you're free. 
and no one understands how it's done except you know we just kind of touch it you know when we uh when we when we freed the shard of the traveler we just kind of touched the shard and it just kind of went away um you know when we ended the black garden kind of same thing we just kind of and it was Dover. We never actually saw what happened there. So it's an interesting mechanic here. The other thing that always stuck out to me, and it's just like hearing other people read it makes it even more noticeable, is first the first point. He says, even light must obey this sword logic in the ever-expanding blighted place, which to me indicates that there is a place that light does not have to obey the sword logic. The other point is, and I just rem- just forgot it, I think that was, I mean, it, I'm just stuck on this this concept that it seems like he's saying that light doesn't have to obey the sword logic in in certain places. Well, so I'll I think that most of the time it contradicts it. Yeah, agreed. And I think that that ties into an earlier line where Toland is talking uh, through the ghost when he's reading Toland's journal, and he's talking about how there are areas of the the uh, dreadnought that light won't reach, and that we mm-hmm. would be like a sun amongst the blight. Um, and I think that ties into an interesting thing, and this is back on the Tolon topic again, but I think that Tolon really underestimated Guardians, and I think that's a big part of his character and a big part of kind of what happened here. I don't think that he understood, I think that he was so busy looking at the Hive and their power that he might have neglected to look at the Guardians' power um, of light, which does seem to contradict the Hive uh, sword logic. And to some extent, even contradicts himself in there, saying that, like, you know, light has to obey the sword logic within these halls. But then clearly that's not 100% true since we used light to contradict the very essence of sword logic. Right. By killing, by killing Oryx outside the system, by reclaiming light and doing all sorts of other crazy stuff. Well, but we killed him inside the system... But we did it in a way that was not expected. Or, I mean, did we kill him with a way that is inside? Yeah, because we, I mean, we challenged him. We challenged him in the way. Hypothetically, if we did it right, we shouldn't have had a choice but to absorb his power. Because that seems to be the way that works. Right, So it might be I see see what you're saying. Our challenge sort of, yeah, yeah. our challenge might have been different and separate and distinct. I got you. That might have been kind of what bungled it. Okay, so your your point is is that if sword logic was infallible, there would be no there would have been no voluntary rebuttal to yeah. walking away. It would have just happened. Correct. Which begs the question of if that if that's the architecture of the psychomutable netherverse that they are within, how does that work? Because I mean, maybe you know, maybe like we we. Within within a throne world, the um, the creator or the strongest will, you know, maybe that's the point. Maybe that is the point. There is that the collective will of the guardians overpowered the singular will of the creator of that throne world. 
And so the architecture of sword logic was no longer the architecture. We we shanghaied we shanghaied his throne world. All right, I'm going to jump in real quick. Now, on the thought of orcs being actually dead, it is a valid question because the very last calcified fragment that you get is one that speaks of a weapon of malice, which we all know at 45 fragments, you get the uh, the touch of malice. So it, there is a chance that somehow orcs could come back, especially if you go back to the... Um, once again, the Books of Sorrow cards. He brought back Savathun and Zivue Wrath, you know, through using their logic, you know, cunning and war. So perhaps somehow if we keep navigating, because that's that was Orcs's even back when he was Orash. That was his thing, as he was the nav- the first navigator. He, she, whatever, wherever we want to go with that works, Jenner. Um, so I wanted to point that out with you and Damo going back and forth, Blue, on uh, works. It was only mentioned briefly, but I do want to point out the fact that technically, if that card is represented as Touch Mouse being a piece of works, he might actually be able to come back. And um, there's another point I wanted to bring up a while back, but, you know, these things, once you get going, there's so many different things to touch on. Right. And um, I mean, but, but even yeah. even when, so like going, going back to the whole, you know, dodging death, um, <clears throat> Even even when he and we'll we're gonna actually touch on that a little bit. Even when we when Oryx killed uh, Zivu and Savathun, he still gained sword logic from those deaths. He still gained it because that's what he the sword logic that he gained from killing them was what he used to kill Akka. Now he then brought them back by redefining them, which is an. We have a card later on that's actually kind of an interesting card because Zivu did the exact same thing to Oryx, um, which is an, an. So technically, Oryx has already kind of skirted around death once or twice, um, outside of the normal. Hey, I'm gonna put my phylactery over here like the guardians, but. Yeah, I don't. I demo. I think you're right. I, I. I mean, I really do think you're. You have a good point there. Is if it was infallible, we wouldn't have had a choice. Yeah, I mean, it seems like so far as we know, the the power transfer when you're, you know, embracing the sword logic is intrinsic. Um, and I, I actually think you brought up a good point about whether Oryx can come back or not, in that theoretically they were still in existence he had simply as you said sort of absorbed them with sword logic so i think that might have been possibly why he can come back and that might be why he won't come back from us because i think we essentially just sent his essence off into the into the nether when we finished with him we didn't really absorb it in the way that a a hive traditionally would have 
Well, we might have, was my point, with the Touch of Malice. Um, I mean, it is a weapon that uses sword logic. Like it, it is the definition of sword logic in a weapon. Kind of. I mean, it, you, you give and you take with that gun. And the other thing I wanted to point out was earlier when we were talking about we weren't supposed to be able to uh, redefine the blighted light. In Destiny, the the motto for the game itself is become legend. Like I've said this, I think numerous times now. Like we, our guardian specifically for each of us is supposed to feel like you really, you know, did things in this game, and that's why they have things like you know the MOTs and all of that. So yeah, we were able to say no, we don't want the the throne so works is dead we're done here unless we need calcified fragments and we'll come back <laughs> so actually i would i would actually say the touch of malice doesn't embody sword logic so much as it does kind of serve as a worm packed diorama because there's nothing Point. about touch of malice Nothing about Touch of Malice uh, makes you stronger after you defeat somebody. What it does is, is it, it, it grants you extra damage, but at your detriment. Um, and I, I firmly believe the way that Oryx mantled um, uh, Sabathun and Jivu Arath to bring them back, so does the Touch of Malice. And in using it, we're actually doing kind of doing his dirty work and and doing the legwork to actually bring orcs back i can see that so my my counterpoint to that is sort of twofold one is that if there's a single person in this universe that hates orcs more than the guardians it's probably eris who made that weapon Mm -hmm. and two if you think about it the touch of malice actually is the antithesis of sword logic and that you're not taking strength from your foes. You're using up your life force in order to damage your foes, right? The whole point of sword logic is murdering your foes and taking their strength in to you. And instead, like not only is it ranged, which is sort of counter to the whole sword logic philosophy directly from the card that we started with, but it also, literally takes your strength instead of theirs, which I think is Eris's twist. So if there's anything of Oryx in there, I think he's probably being tortured because he's, I think, being forced to live out. Yeah, I was actually uh, making a comparison towards the the Ascendant and their worm feeding off them. So they're, they're granted uh, eternal life, essentially, and and their worm is feeding off of them. The touch of malice actually grants you extra damage, but slowly feeds off of you. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely make the the distinction between sword logic and the worm pact, or having having a worm, you know, feeding off of you. Uh, but well, that's really good point about about Eris having made it. I think the problem with that is that the the worm pact is sustainable, whereas touch of malice there there isn't a way to sustain You're it. That could be right. that could be like you're talking about a part of like the the diorama or microcosm that you know an example of the worm pact, not actually a direct translation. 
it's a it's a translation to of the worm pact that's a bit less Faustian and actual and actually will work. Because I mean yeah. that's that's the whole joke about the worm pact is that it's it's really a Faustian bargain, you know. <clears throat> there there is no and there's there's a entire card in the books of sorrow where they where they you know the I think it's the great betrayal or some it's one of them. But when Oryx, well, and it's part of the the part where he's questioning the sword logic and all that. Um, but when they find when he finally like confirms, they're like, yeah, crap. Like we're not going to be the final form when they finally sit down and kind of think it, think it through. And, you know, they're not like, we're going to have revenge, blah, blah, blah. They, they realize that they've been betrayed and the worm pact, you know, they've, they've made a deal with the devil and they're screwed. So. Sign that long contract with AT&T. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do we, <laughs> uh, I have, I have one more thing to interject after yeah, that. No, it also is possible that, uh, Oryx, uh, that Oryx's return might not be so literal. Um, because there were more than a few times where Oryx did want to stop this, this crazy train, right? Uh, of the sisters, he's the only one that we know directly wanted out, um, I think twice, maybe if I remember correctly, at least once. Um, so it's possible that his return is different than we might think and not coming back into this universe, but escaping the pact and possibly eventually helping the guardians to avenge him. Yeah. Which is terrifying in its own right. Because Oryx, Oryx without a worm well, but like I said, it might cannon. not be a literal. It yeah, might not be a literal no, that's, return. That's true. Yeah, it may just be his his contribution to the war effort, so to speak. Like, you know, these guys messed up my entire species and put us off on this horrible path. So, you know, I'm gonna whoever beats me, I'll lend enough power to to. I see where you're going. Yeah, eliminate this 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 vile species. If he does literally return, then yeah, Oryx Sandsworm is pretty scary. <laughs> okay so do we want to move on to the taken night yeah i think that'd be it i think okay. mel's gonna oh. grab that one for us oh yeah go right in. okay so the taken night you're a knight ancient warrior elite dreadful backbone of the hive you have scared entire worlds you have been taken set down your sword Put down your boomer. The fight has not yet begun. True immortality awaits you. What vows compel you? What drives you down the long centuries? You fear death, even as you visit nothingness on your foes, even as you gather tribute for your acolytes. You know that one day your strength will be outmatched and your centuries of slaughter will end. So you practice your guard. You call up walls to protect you. You betray the sword logic. You compromise the totality of your violence. Why protect your ground when you could take the enemies? You need to make your guard into a weapon. There is a knife for you. It's shaped like no more fear. Take up the knife. Hide no more. 
take your shape. So, so yeah, I definitely think- the night. It's, it's, when you think about the, the part that stands out for most in this card is that the knights, they, it, it's weird how they do put up that shield because you think if there are truly are devoted people or devoted creatures of the sword logic that they are going to want to go full board. And that weird hesitation to me, I, I don't under hundred percent understand what that means, but to me that always was very interesting because you think they're just going to want to, go full charge you know they want to they want to can have that continuation they want to assume the power of their foe so um any other stuff on this card i think that uh that's an important point that the hive in many ways do not honor the sword logic that they revere because a lot of their tactics are not I mean, you're right. They should be going full bore. Their whole goal should be like, I want to kill enough enemies that, you know, I ascend. I don't weaken. Mm -hmm. And that's not seemingly how they behave. Um, Do you think it's maybe possible that is part of their initial nature? Them actually trying to fight the worm that's inside them, that they're actually like, okay, this is a part of me that's still alive. That was prior to becoming you know, what they are now before they decided to let take in that worm. I don't know, just a thought. <laughs> it, it could be. My thought is really that the system doesn't have the purity that it espouses and that a right. lot of them want their position more than they necessarily want to cre- create the final form to carve the universe into whatever that shape is um, mm-hmm. that they actually enjoy their status there's actually indications in grimoire cards when they when you're reading about the hive that sort of back that particularly when they talk about the court of oryx mm-hmm. i was i was gonna point out too there's a there's a couple points and we're gonna we're gonna definitely get into it with the next grimoire card um but it's starting to seem that sword logic it's a misnomer um it's not necessarily restricted to swords and melee um because like you know exactly what you just said demo they're not they're not using blades you know not necessarily knights knights you tend to but not necessarily there are boomers there are you know shredders excuse me um, it's more of, it's more of the philosophy. And as far as, you know, Mel, your question about, is this a nod back to their, their original nature? I, I would, I would agree with Damo that it's not, I think it's actually just really basic self-preservation. Like there, there's, there's a, there's a point in which a mortal entity or a mortal entity like not a mortal enemy, but a mortal, like as opposed to an immortal, um, there is an instinctual point at which you really, really will find it difficult to push that entity past. Um, it is very rare to find an any animal a complete disregard, like without without you know, in, uh, 
offspring being threatened or being backed into a corner, it's very rare to find an entity that just completely ignores self-preservation. And self-preservation is just like a very, it's a base instinct. And it's, it's something that is so common in things that die. Um, you know, not being an immortal, I can't tell you what a, a, a creature that doesn't have to worry about that would feel. But it, it seems like that's a universal instinctual element, you know, no matter where you go. If there's death, there is a degree of self-preservation. And I think that's really what's being right here. When it says for the Taken Knight that it that he carves out no more fear, that's what I'm thinking. Is he's taking away this 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 iota of self-preservation and he's like, No, you are a weapon. This is what you are. You are not you are not a living thing, which I know Damo is going to like knife me for, but, but I mean, you know, he, he's remaking, you know, the entire process of being taken is literally being baptized in the darkness. Like you are literally infused into the darkness, which is where you get the taken shiver, you know, where they like do the little twitching the taken shiver is an indication of the the organism fighting that baptism of darkness um and so when it says that there is a knife that you shave away that fear when i read that that's what i'm reading is that that's the removal of that that you know instinct to self preserve yourself and just fight you know just go attack so but that's that's my take on on this card, Justin. I think you wanted to, you had something too. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say I don't necessarily. I know at first glance, using any kind of uh, defensive tactic at all seems to be counter to sword logic, but I don't really know that it is. Uh, simply for the fact that if you allow yourself to be killed, you're proved false, which is to say that you know, logically speaking in, in the rules of as orcs or Tolan calls them these spaces, you were proved false. You no longer have the right to exist. Um, in a tug of war battle, you know, there will be attack and defense and attack and defense. And I think, I think just the fact that a regular hive knight uses his wall of darkness, I don't think that necessarily is like heresy to the sword logic. Um, could be wrong, but I was going to ask, and I can never remember one from the other. What is the the Taken Knight's um, ability? Isn't it a? I was going to say it was a bubble. No, it's the uh, little flamethrower. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that like the captain? Uh, who who is it? That which one of them? Got the captain the has Vandal. the captain has the blind right. balls. Cool. Vandal has. Yeah, one. but um, yeah, Stevie Wonders. But yes. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Just make your guard in, into a weapon. I also wanted to kind of add that the the hive hierarchy, it seems like a caste system. Um, so you've got units within this kind of hierarchy um, that have to, to some degree, 
know their role. You know what I mean? Um, Knights might have to defend. You know, they a gatekeeper might have to sit in an ascendant realm and not necessarily run around, you know, run around, you know, collecting tribute. Um, that's just his role within the hierarchy. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's not fulfilling sword logic. Um, he's just working within his, his own, you know, position in the, the hierarchy. At least is the way I, I view it. Now, I also view the Taken uh, iteration of each of these enemies as being a kind of above that. They've been taken. They've been made more perfect in, in Oryx's view. And they, now they kind of operate on a different plane. Well, so my, my point about the, the knights sort of failing in sword logic is sort of rooted in the fact that a lot of the, the BOS cards lead us to believe that in sword logic, proving yourself is, is how you honor sword logic, right? If you are weak and, should, and, and will fall, then you should fall because you're, you're detracting from the final form, right? You should, like, if you, you're not strong enough to, to prove your might, then get out of the way, right? Die to something that can prove its might, and let that, let that rampage across the galaxy. So I th- think that, to some extent, knights should be pursuing death and either glory or death, I guess, is the way to say it. And that by not doing so, then they're they're not necessarily pursuing the sword logic, which I think is to some extent sort of more indication that the hive is not as unified about the sword logic as they might think. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, to to expand on that, let's jump into Ghost Fragment Darkness Three, which actually is a it's a pretty good explanation of sword logic um it's it's from the journals of tolan the shattered and it says i drive myself to the edge of madness trying to explain the truth it's so simple elegant like a knife point it explains this is not hyper hyperbole it is the furthest thing from exaggeration everything but you lay it out and they stare at you like you've just been in exhaling dust Maybe they're missing some underlying scaffold of truth. Maybe they're all just propped up on a bed of lies that must be burned away. Why does anything exist? No, 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 no. Don't reach for that word. There's no reason. That's teleology, and teleology will stitch your eyelids shut. Why do we have atoms? Because atomic matter is more stable than the primordial broth. Atoms defeated the broth. That was the first war. There were two ways to be, and one of them won, and everything that came next was made of atoms. Atoms made stars, stars made galaxies, worlds simmered down to rock and acid, and in those smoking primal seas, the first living molecule learned to copy itself. All of this happened by the one law, the blind law, which exists without mind or meaning. It's the simplest law, but it has no worshippers here. Out there, though, out there, how do I explain it? It's so simple. Why don't you see? Imagine three great nations under three great queens. The first queen, 
writes a great book of law, and her rule is just. The second queen builds a high tower, and her people climb it to see the stars. The third queen raises an army and conquers everything. The future belongs to one of these queens. Her rule is harshest, and her people are unhappy, but she rules. This explains everything, understand. This is why the universe is the way it is, and not some other way. Existence is a game that everything plays, and some strategies are winners. The ability to exist, to shape existence, to remake it so that your descendants, molecules, or stars, or people, or ideas, will flourish, and others will find no ground to grow. And as the universe ticks on towards the close, the great players will face each other. In the next round, there will be three queens, and all of them will have armies, and now it will be a battle of swords, until one discovers the cannon, or the plague, or the killing word. Everything is becoming more ruthless, and in the end, only the most ruthless will remain. Look up at the sky, and they will hunt the territories of the night, and extinguish the first glint of competition before it can even understand what it faces or why it has transgressed. This is the shape of victory, to rule the universe so absolutely that nothing will ever exist except by your consent. This is the queen at the end of time, whose sovereignty is eternal because no other sovereign can defeat it, and there is no reason for it no more than there was reason for the victory of the atom. It is simply the winning play. And of course, it might be that there was another country with other queens, and in this country they sat down together and made one law and one tower and one army to guard their borders. This is the dream of small minds, a gentle place ringed in spears. But I do not think those spears will hold against the queen of the country of armies. And that is all that will matter in the end. This card is like awesome and the most controversial card in like, I I would argue the grimoire right now. There are so many debates that get brought up because of this card. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let Damo take first stab because I know he has something to say. Um, okay, I think that this is a really um, important card for my theory that uh, Toland has underestimated the the light because he he only gives very you know mild lip service to other ways other than essentially sword logic, and in he he really truly believes that that is the only path. He's even ascribing elements that may have nothing to do with the sword logic itself sword logic, right? The atom and the broth, which was not necessarily really a conflict. They didn't necessarily war in a traditional sense. They didn't sit there and go, you know, damn you broth, you're, you offend my eyes, right? It just, it just shaped up that one was a little bit better and the other one disappeared, right? It's like evolution. Evolution isn't a, an opposed situation. It's just one species is a little more suited to live and thus it does, right? Um, but Tolon describes these these acts as acts of sword logic and assigns conflict to them because I believe that he thinks that is the only path to the end shape. 
and he even he even does doubt himself a little bit because he talks about the you know if three got together and made one law then it might work but then he immediately flips back over to the sword logic way of thinking and says that he would stand to against the the armies though in king's fall we sort of prove that it does right because a fire team is a good example of people coming together under one law and not not pursuing sword logic right and i will i do want to point out um we made this just as a side note really because everyone knows i love my trivia um we made this comment when we were talking about Toland way, 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 way back. But Toland in Destiny seems to be completely and utterly based off a figure, a, a an Irish-born rationalist philosopher uh, who went by the name of John Toland from 16, it was like 1670 to 1722. Um, and the entire reason I bring this up is that the in almost the entirety of John Toland's philosophical and free thinking and you know all the satire that he wrote really 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 parallels the figure of Toland within destiny and so the thing the thing is is like when when Toland talks about the logic of the sword or the you know the one law um I don't this is this is where I separate out sword logic from worm pact because sword logic as spoken here seems that it is literally just the process of evolution. You know, like you like you said, there there wasn't necessarily a quote unquote war between the the atom and the broth, but and I mean he makes that point. He says that it was just the winning play. Right? He said, you know, it just one survived and the other, then the other didn't. And there's no reason, there's no teleology there. And the, the comment about teleology will stitch your eyelids shut. Um, teleology is, it, it's basically um, the doctrine of design and purpose. So it's, it's an, in, it's a uh, intelligent design argument. Um so in 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 regards to philosophy, what teleology usually is is an ex- explanation of phenomena by the purpose they serve rather than by postulated causes. So rather it's you know the end justifies the mean rather the mean justifies the end. Um, which, if you look at it from that point, you know you kind of you you get a sense of that that kind of not really immoral but amoral approach. Um, and that's also where he kind of, I mean, that's, that's like the entire last half of this card really to me is just him just being like, this is just the law of the jungle. Like, you know, this is just the way the world works. It's not fair. It's not quote unquote just in whatever sense of society is looking at, but it's just what it works. You know, the, it doesn't, it doesn't do to yell at the lion for not being a fair player when he's eating you because the lion is stronger than you. But, and this is where demo, I, I do, I do like the point you made 
a pack of wolves will take down a single predator. That's that's where you know I I always attribute the guardian ranks to the pack of wolves, um, whereas Oryx is like that single lion. You know he's he's very strong and he's very powerful and one on one, sure he'd squish us, but you put a pack against a solitary predator and pretty much hands down the pack is always going to win because they work together. It's an allocentric versus egocentric debate. And that's what it really is, is egocentricism is that focus on the self and allocentricism is that focus on the other. And the guardians seem to focus on the other and the team. And that's ultimately, that's the winning play. So, and I mean, just that's my reading of this card. And I think that's actually what my, when I, when I defend sword logic as what the guardians use, we're we're making a winning play. We are actually using sword logic in the sense of survival. So I'm get, I'm going to be quiet for a moment. Let other people talk. Um, to me, sword logic, especially after reviewing this card, just reads like an extreme version of Darwinism. That whoever is the survival of the fittest, and it's going to always be the survival of the fittest. And in this case, they're trying to point out that we, for us to continue in beating down in, in these other foes or these other species, you can even look at it that way, that we will become the supreme race. And by become the supreme race, we will eventually basically become the one that not only rules everyone, but controls everyone. To me, they're taking it beyond the fact of evolution, but they're kind of saying like, at some point, you know, probably, you know, if you want to equate it to ascending, that they've become, they become the gods. And right now, when you bring in what Blue was saying with the guardians, the, the, um, the guardians are the ones that are there to basically, define or or not define to uh, go against the rules of evolution in a sense that we individually were not strong enough to to take you on. But as a whole species, as a group, we will be the ones that that prevail over everyone. It's the same thing. Like if you think about it as like if we humans, humans in a sense would be in a guardian and we have, you know, evolved and worked together as a group. And now we're the strongest predators in terms of what we know in our life. But if we single-handedly would go up to that lion or whatever it be is or a whale, obviously they're going to overtake us and, and kill us, but together as a whole. Um, but yeah, I'm going to stop rambling on about Darwinism and let, let someone else continue on here. <laughs> Um, I think I think it's important to note that it's almost a twisted, uh, not just an extreme form of Darwinism, but a twisted form of it, because it, Darwinism really only comes into play, and in, like survival of the fittest is not a continual state. It's not the mm-hmm. constant state of the world. It's just intended to illustrate what happens when times are tough, so to speak. Right? Mm-hmm. Like like the wolves don't go out and and try to eliminate all 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 predators right they they only do that when territory is rough or it's been a bad winter so there's not enough food um given given enough space and enough food most 
most of evolution, most of the the primal species are actually pretty agreeable with each other. Um, there's some great examples in nature of, of animals not necessarily obeying their their primal predator type instincts and instead being fairly benevolent because they they could, right? They weren't hungry. They had plenty of food. They just you know let something get away or decided not to kill the baby and adopt it or whatever. Um, and I think that the hive partially at the urging of the worms are pushing that to an extreme, um, as you said, and creating a, a, a radicalized version of Darwinism, if you will. Yeah, I can see that. I did. I do want to make real quick. Um, Mel made a point on man being, you know, the, the predator, the head predator or whatever. Um, it always brings, and I said this in the chat too, it always brings up the this quote from Blaise Pascal that always just sticks in my head whenever people talk about this. And it's, the quote says, Man is only a reed, the weakest in nature, but he is a thinking reed. There is no need for the whole universe to take up arms to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water is enough to kill him. But even if the universe were to crush him, man would still be nobler than his slayer because he he knows that he is dying and the advantage the universe has over him. The universe knows none of this. Um, and and really, what that the entire point there is is that we as humanity, we're not we're not super impressive on the physical spectrum with with regards to other predators like a wolf could you know destroy us a lion would eradicate us um on a one you know in a one-on-one fight but we have something that they don't have and that's the brain and higher function thinking skills that allowed us to develop tools and weapons which you know we then used to survive that so in the reason i say that is it just that entire and yeah you're you're 100 percent correct on darwinism it is not a constant you know your predators are not constantly going out and killing other predators it wouldn't work like you you would they would all die ultimately because they would starve you know or the they would it wouldn't balance there is a balance in nature that is needed to be maintained and that kind of that kind of imbalance would be rectified very quickly so well i think it's worth pointing out that the hive live with that imbalance and from their history lived with that imbalance for a long time which may be part of what shaped right um uh, yeah i i always you know are you in your meaning when they were the krill yeah yeah i mean but did they did they live with an imbalance or was it a perceived imbalance well so they right? i mean you know what i'm saying that, that that whole ecosystem seemed kind of out of whack possibly because of the very presence of the worms well, right but yeah. that whole that whole ecosystem seems like it probably wasn't 100% balanced i do agree that you can't really take everything out of there with a you know for face value it could very well be well, I mean, like I just you said perceived. Right. I mean, I just read them as being originally prey. You know, they well, they were. They were originally prey. And honestly, if you ask a deer 
what the natural cycle is, they're going to probably be a little bit more critical about the balance than a wolf, you know, just in general. Prey, prey yeah. tend to have a little bit, you know, short end of the stick situation. For sure. But, I mean, there, I, I mean, yeah. Organisms that kind of live on, on a knife edge in the natural world. Right. All the time. <clears throat> I was just going to real quick uh, kind of draw the, the quick little parallel between the poem. Every Des- Destiny player's at least heard the first four lines of. Um, and that is The Law of the Jungle by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, there are similarities and differences between this and kind of the ethos of the hive, the sword logic and everything. But it's definitely, we were talking about packs of wolves over and over again. And I was like, this is not, this is not going to uh, <laughs> pass without at least at least reading a little bit of it, but everyone's familiar with the law of the jungle. It was in the one of, one of the first promos for destiny vanilla. And it starts out. Now this is the law of the jungle as old and as true as the sky and the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. And then it, it kind of goes, it's a lot longer than most of us have probably heard. And, and uh, it kind of reads like bylaws for a wolf pack. And the interesting part of this poem for me is um, how there's a, there's a distinct balance in in the way that a wolf pack works in this poem between the allocentric and the egocentric. Um, you know, if you hunt during the day, do it quietly so you don't scare food away for the rest of the pack. But if you kill, if if a wolf kills his own until he gives the pack permission to eat of it. And it's just like this, this odd balance between, uh, between the self and the collective that I think really doesn't exist within the sword logic. It, at first glance, you think, Oh, this is just our version of the sword logic, but it's really not, at least not in my view. I didn't, I didn't know what y'all uh, thought about that. I, I think I think I actually agree with you almost entirely, um, because the sword logic, sort of by its own nature, wants to pick a shape, right? It has no room for cooperation, or or sharing, or or a pack, right? It doesn't it doesn't value diversity. It doesn't value um, communication or cooperation. It values the ultimate form, which should be withered down to you know a, a razor's edge, right? There should not be. There's not a lot of room there. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're right. I think that the sword logic and possibly why the guardians keep giving the hive what for, so to speak, is that we don't, we don't truck with that. We, we work as a team. And, and actually it's hard for them to understand strategies we may employ because they can't understand a being who would take an offering of blighted light and, do something as unspeakable of it, you know, with it as detonated or, you know what I mean? Like they, that never entered their mind that we may do that or that we may defeat orcs and walk away because they can't, they can't fathom it because it's, it's so contrary to their very laws of their being, you know? Agreed. What'd you, what did you have, Willie? 
Um, going way back, I'm going to point out <laughs> that the the human race is very special in the game of Destiny. All three playable races, as of right now, since the beginning of the game, are Exos, Awoken, and of course Human. But we all know that Awoken used to be human, but they were trapped between the dark and the light. And Exos, while they may not be human, they still have a human consciousness, or at least the ones that we have interact with um, as of today. Um, <clears throat> a stranger, we don't know who she is, but we know that she has a human consciousness. And then, of course, we have our, our good buddy Cade, who definitely has a human consciousness and is just he's all right for Hunter. I'll leave it at that. Um, so that's going way back to the whole humans being um, special, I think, was kind of where it was going early on when, you know, everybody was talking earlier. And when it comes to the krill, back when they were the krill instead of the hive, it seemed like specifically where Orash came from, who of course, is known as orcs in the raid. The Osmium Court specifically seemed like it was the lowest of the low. Like, you had the Krill, all these other courts, and then at the very bottom, you had the Osmium Court. So, for them, there was really nowhere to go but up. And thanks to their pact with the Worm Gods, which we all know was a huge mistake for them at the same time. That's what gave them their power was them accepting the worm gods and accepting sword logic. Uh, I think that's about all my two cents that I had to throw in there. Um, I think that's a good point that the curl may very well have been either the bottom or very close to the bottom. Uh, we don't, we definitely don't hear about them lording it over anybody else, uh, just getting lorded over. Um, and I think that your other point about humanity specialness is, is spot on. I think that there is something distinct about it. Like we don't, we don't know that there were ever guardians outside of humanity. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps that's, that's why the traveler decided to make his stand here because he, he saw something that was, you know, different, something that might change the, the scales um, and allow for a situation that may not have been possible before. I mean, I could definitely see, you know, like the Lixney Guardians in the next game. But as it stands right now and in, in the Destiny that we know and love so much, everything that we can play as whether you're an Exo, an Awoken, or a human, you're still at least based off of humanity in one way, shape, or form. You know, the Exos have human consciousness. The Awoken used to be humans. They got caught between the dark and the light. And then, you know, if you're a human, you're a human. Um, so it, it definitely does speak volumes of humanity's importance whether the traveler chose us because we're just, you know, it seemed like we're the race to go with 
because we know they it did bless the elixir before, but you know they didn't have such great turnouts, and um, we all know that Damo is a fallen enthusiast, so just a little. I won't. A little. I, I won't touch on that too much more. <laughs> but uh, I did want to just you know once again point out that humanity, no matter what you are the guardian that you are right now in one shape way or form was a human at one point. Um, and then of course there's a whole thing with the, uh, the krill, the osmium port specifically was like the lowest on food chain. It seemed to be on that planet for so long. Like you, you had all these other races that they didn't speak too much about, but they were there <laughs> and then there was the krill and then there was the osmium court and we we all know of course what happened especially if you listen to the uh, books of sorrow ones that we did with the osmium court and what came to be afterwards Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. I want to, I don't want to go too far off topic, but I do think that it's worth noting that there's something special about the Elixni too, because they're the only other race that Oryx has gone after that didn't get wiped out. Right. I mean, if he was genociding their race, he did a pretty terrible job as you know, if you look at it, because there's an awful lot of them still around. What, uh, just, just want to point out too. We think orcs went after them. Right. We don't really have confirmation. Well we know we know that the darkness tore them out and right. it could be another race. No, it could have been another race. They had a whirlwind. Well um, now whether that whirlwind was the darkness or if it was orcs or if it was just the traveler leaving in a hurry because the darkness was coming. But we we don't one hundred percent know yet. I'll also yeah. point out that there is a weapon from the Whirlwind on there you go. Oryx's drop table, right? There mm-hmm. is a weapon that specifically mentions the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes from Oryx. So there's there's a direct connection saying that, yeah, he probably was there. I, I'm I'm not yeah, for the for the record, I'm not I'm not disagreeing. Right. I'm just saying we there, were pretty sure. There's also yeah. a comment about the hive being the wind of progress. So, you know, you, his Oryx has the attack of the maw. Um, there's yep. the the description of the hive as the wind of progress. There's the weapon drop that you're talking about with Chelchis. I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of points. Um, I just I do want to make a point of saying while we think that it's just. That that one is just not quite confirmed yet, right? But I feel that the weapon is a pretty solid indicator. They definitely had a will and an intent with taking King, so I don't think there's a whole lot of accidents. Yeah, speaking of which, those weapons, you know, just as an aside, he did a really fast job in creating the paladins into weapons. Because I mean. It wasn't like he was just sitting around for a while after the Battle of Saturn. Yeah, I think there's a brief delay, but yeah, it seems like he can 
he can shift gears on on somebody's soul pretty quick. Yeah, I was I was pretty impressed. I mean, Yasmin was pretty defiant, but good, good job making her into a sniper rifle. And poor thing only got the war priest. <laughs> Just <So>. embarrassing. <laughs> you wanna? Sorry, my my, my girl deserved better. <laughs> You want to grab Darkness 4 while you just jump into that one? Yeah, let's go ahead. All right, Darkness 4. The war is all there is for you. What else do you have? You walk among mortals and immortals, a creature lost in time. Your only purpose is the struggle. Does it seem unfair to be brought back into this, the end of days, the long dwindling exhalation of an ancient corpse? You were at peace. Now you are a dead husk charged with war. Do you remember anything of freedom? Fight on, then. This war is everything, but consider the choices before you. This is actually one of my favorite cards in all of Destiny. Um, mm-hmm. Because I I legitimately don't know... Like, I can't figure out 100% who's talking. Um, it, it seems, from the name, to be the darkness. But my personal theory is that it's Osiris. Um... Because he is the person in our history uh, of the Guardians who is most interested in waking people up, so to speak. Um, and this points to the Guardians possibly not being the, sh- the people that they were, but being shells of the light. Um, and him possibly telling you, you know, wake up, look around you, think what's going on. Don't just fight this war because you're here. Um possibly even indicating that it's unfair that we're here. Yeah, which points back to the Osiris card like significantly. Yeah. Um I I totally I totally agree. Um I think I can see I can see this being an Osiris snippet like being like, yeah, the war is everything. Good job, but you know, you might want to consider your choices. Just, you know, like I can totally just see that conversation being like yeah, keep keep drinking the Kool Aid. But if you if you ever don't want to drink the Kool Aid, remember there's a there's a cup of water right beside you. Yeah. And I think that the the war is is all there is for you is actually intended to be delivered derisively. Right. I, I think not. Right. I don't think it's literal. I think it's him like being sarcastic and snarky, saying that you know you haven't even bothered to look around. You haven't stopped punching people or golden gunning people or you know void dunking people long enough to go wait what's going what what is actually going on here right and i mean he i mean and the other the other thing is the the other point that i would have here is the comment about you were at peace and now you are a dead husk charged with war i mean so it does kind of indicate that i mean it could have been a thanatonaut too right and I see, you know, Ryan, Ryan and Chad is actually saying that right now. Um, he thinks that it's whatever spoke to Bajari in the dream about the Black Garden, because that call that the quote was, you are a dead thing made, made by a dead power in the shape of the dead. All you will ever do is kill. You do not belong here. This is a place of life. So, I mean, and that's and that's also a very parallel in the tone yeah actually it it could be anyone that's 
the, the sad reality of the situation. It doesn't have that condescending Toland tone to it. That's yeah, it's a little. In, it's it's a little neutral and almost. coherent. Yeah, but I do like <laughs> I do like the thought that um, it's not asking them to uh, stay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Please, could you could you hang out? I I just made pizza rolls. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's always just made pizza rolls. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, that is an actual actual very interesting idea that that's Osiris. It, it would make a it would make a lot of sense. Um, uh, do we think there's any um, any really strong significance to the fact that the word is in the second to last sentence? Fight on then this the war is everything. Is there any special reason both letters of the word is are capitalized? I think it's I think what Damo said is right. It's kind of I I get the sense of it's like a snark. Like yeah, yeah here's here's the company line, but it's not almost like it should be in air quotes. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um do I remember if do you any of you remember if Osiris was a Thanatonaut? He studied. He studied Thanatonautics. So, in Thanatonautics is what. So hypothetically, is. the other card that we were talking about could also be Osiris right. that shares a toe. I didn't say that, but yes. I mean, I I did it for you. <laughs> <laughs> See, what we call you is an, you're an enabler. And, uh, well, I mean, I this I have to give Blue. Uh, props for this because he's the one who won me over on not thinking Osiris was a villain. Um, I win. <laughs> so, so I, I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid and oh, so I'm, I'm willing yes. to enable that. Um, I'm still not sure if he's a good guy or not, oh, but yeah. I definitely am beginning to think that he might be, there's more to him than, than Toland, for example. Well, yeah, that, that doesn't take much. <laughs> no. <laughs> Two brain cells to rub together. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> All right. So, real quick, I, I just wanted to throw out once again. Dang it, Damo! <laughs> he threw me completely off topic. I had one thing I wanted to say, and now I got to say another. As far as Osiris goes, the biggest difference it seems like to me between him and Toland with me constantly chasing the lighthouse and getting the other armor pieces, weapon pieces is with Osiris. He went from the, he came from the light. Then he went into the darkness, but he also came back to the light. Whereas in, you have Toland who we all know, um, finally heard his song he wanted to hear so badly, whether or not he got everybody else killed in the process in his team is to be confirmed or denied from Bungie. Confirmed. Kind of seems like he... (laughs) You shut your face. It's to be confirmed or denied as of right now. But the point is Toland seems like he just went from, you know, he's of course from the light because he's a guardian. At some point, we don't know when, it really seems like he lost his ghost. 
because he does say at one point that if he had a ghost, it would have screamed. So we don't know how Tolan lost his ghost, um, how he had the bad juju, you know, how he created it, because we know that has hive energy in it as well. But we do know that he's in the ascendant realm of the hive because for Ear Ute, he defined himself as a friend to her. So she defined equity of death for him. Now, that means, of course, she sung her song. And for whatever reason, instead of dying like we do, he died, but he was in the he, he was sent to the ascendant realm somehow. We don't know exactly how yet. So thanks, Damo, for getting me on that rant. Oh, I wish I could remember the other point, but you, you threw me off here with the whole Tolan being completely evil thing. My job here is done. <laughs> damn it, damn it. <laughs> Do we want to roll to the Books of Sorrow? Yeah, there were um, a few. There were a few that think have some good definitions. Yeah. Um, the first one we actually have is <laughs> chapter 15 or 16, which is the sword logic. It's verse 216, actually. At last, we knew curiosity would draw you back, orcs. In their desperation, the Ammonite have begun using paracausal weapons. What are these? How do they work? Wouldn't you like to know? Suffice to say that some powers in this universe are superordinate to mere material physics. The source of these weapons is the Traveler, the sky's bait star. Their effect is subtle, but devastating. But you are armed to respond in kind. Savathun's mothers have listened carefully to our teachings. We will not give you the deep, King Orcs. That power is for us, your gods. But we will teach you to call upon the force with signs and rituals. Small minds might call it magic. You are no longer bound by causal closure. Your will defeats law. Kill a hundred of your children with a long blade, orcs, and observe the change in the blade. Observe how the universe shrinks from you in terror. Your existence begins to define itself. Of course, high orcs, we know it was not curiosity alone that brought you back to the war. You felt your own death growing inside you. You must obey your nature. Your worm must feed. And they leave that with the three dots as in continuance, which this is the card that they kind of, it seems like they try to explain sword logic. Um, Well, more orcs giving in to sword logic because at this point he actually had no choice. It was give in, feed your worm, or die. You know, this is, this is one of those points where Orcs realizes we just made a deal with the devil. So we either have to keep going with this deal or we die, which, I mean, who wants to die? Especially not Orcs. Um, any other thoughts on that card? 
I think it's interesting that it points out that only because of their desperation do the Ammonites resort to using paracausal weapons. And I said this in chat too, but it makes you wonder what they were looking at. Like, what was the price that they paid to use those weapons? Um, It also, you know, I know a lot of people who are getting into lore see paracausal and see paracausality and see all these, you know, these concepts being thrown around. And their first question is, what in, what in the, is paracausal? And this actually, this actually gives kind of a nod to an answer. It says that some powers in this universe are subordinate to mere material physics. Um, and that, that really explains a lot about guardians and the ascendant hive. Um, Basically, it's something that super supersedes material physics, so it, it sidesteps physical physical cause and effect. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as as far as definitions and sword logic, actually, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a nod um, because it starts talking about how you need to observe how the blade changes and observe how the universe changes once you start following the the raw once you start following the raw nature of their interpretation of sword logic um so not only is this the beginnings of the hive blossoming and learning the the paracausal paracausal abilities of the deep but this is, and also I, I would make a connection between their paracausal capabilities and ours, but we're not going to talk about that right now. But it's also the point at which they start the descent into the madness of the worm pact and the worm's definition of sword logic. This is, this is the point at which he, he kills a hundred of his children with a sword and watches and learns from how the universe shrinks from him in terror and how his existence begins to define itself. And that, you know, I mean, most of us would be like, yeah, you're, you're becoming a monster at this point. I mean, you just killed your offspring, you know, normal human morality that, that kind of shrinks away from that. You know, that's not, that's not something that's normal and that's not something we observe as, as a desirable practice. So I don't know. It's just my, my point of interpretation there, Justin, I think you wanted to, you had something to throw in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, also, I think the, the, and I might be completely off base here. I think the thing to remember um, when dealing with them is, this is a completely, well, maybe not completely. They seem to be to, to some degree, amoral, the hive. And maybe not in the beginning when they were the krill, there definitely seems to be some sort of um, love and fealty to their king and to their country somewhat. But as they descend into being the hive, um, morality kind of just com- seems to completely dissolve. I might be wrong. There might be instances of morality um, peeking its head out within their history throughout the books of sorrow. But um, 
So the whole kill a hundred of your children, whereas we would within our kind of moral construct of how we perceive the world and how we go through our daily lives, it it's, you know, terrifying us, but to them it's not so much. I don't, I don't think there's that knee jerk. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, also I just recently, and this is kind of a little bit off topic, but I just recently, uh, started a warlock and as such, I'm getting for the first time, a bunch of warlock gear. And I just wanted to throw this in here as, um, a further kind of emphasis on paracausality. I got a blue warlock bond that kind of has a little insight into paracausal. Um, it's called creation's wind. It's a rare warlock bond. And it says the light releases us from causality. It smooths the contours of what we can and cannot do. Obviously, the light part of that flavor text doesn't really apply here, but um, the fact that it smooths the contours of what we can and can't do um, makes the seemingly impossible possible. But yes, if no one else has anything on that card, I have the next one which is called an incision. Verse 3-1, an incision. Saith Oryx, my siblings, our children, are scattered across many moons, and we live in the cold dark between suns. What will we eat? How will we speak? Savathun said, Oryx, my brother and king, I have studied the wounds cut by the worm, our God. Also, I have studied the manner of your death and return. These two things are the same, for they are predicated on death and the passage through cut spaces. Let us practice the sword logic until we are sharp. Then we may cut our own wounds and step through. But Shiva Arath said, Sister, I am already sharp. Look, my sword cuts into another space. And she cut her way between the moons through the green fire and joyous screams. Three kingdoms grew swollen in the sword space. They were the gaze and glory of Oryx, the cunning and knowledge of Sabathun, the triumph and brawn of Shivu Arath. These kingdoms were created from the minds and worms of our lords. They were Cotterminius. Oh, I'm sorry, Cotterminius. These kingdoms were created from. Uh, sorry, they were Cotterminius with all spaces consecrated by our hive. Through these spaces passed speech and food and all the moons were bound close. Saith Oryx, this is where I went when I died. Let us establish our thrones here, for I am Oryx, the first navigator, and I shall chart death, and my throne shall be carved of Osmium. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Uh, just real quick, Codermanus is literally having the same boundaries or extent in space, time, or meaning. So, basically, they're talking about the throne worlds or the sword space as being... Um, I'm going to blame you, Justin, for getting me to watch Stranger Things because all I can yes. think all I can think of is the upside down. That's Psycho what a mutable nether first. Right? No, it is. <laughs> like that's that's what it is. It's coterminous with all spaces 
in it's it's a dark mirror not necessarily dark because well it's dark because it's the hive but it's a mirror of all the spaces so it's just a that's that's they're just explaining what the throne worlds is and the throne world and so the point of the sword logic is to give them the power to create an access to the sword space which is to cut that wound um is really the 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 point of incision the card here um i know the next card is the high war so if we don't have anything else so the high war verse three two now is a time of dysphoria there there was a war between oryx sabathun and shiva arath brother oryx said sabathun do not forgive my betrayal instead take vengeance upon me for what i did at the dry moon and Oryx made war on her in worship of the deep. Between them stood Shiva Raph saying, stop or I will kill you. War is mine and I am the strongest. This is how they worshipped. For 20,000 years they fought across the moons and they fought in the abysmal plains in lighted places of each other's sword spaces. And they killed each other again and again so that they could practice death. Such was their love. At last, the many moons came to many worlds, and it was time to go to war on life. Oryx said, I shall establish a court, and whoever comes into this court may challenge me. My court will be the high war. It will be a killing ground in a school of sword logic we have learned from our gods. Sabbath thought this was a great idea. She made a court called the High Coven. Shiva said, the world is my court wherever there is war. So, so yeah, so Court of Oryx and uh, how it was established. So, I, I, forgive me. Um, so, from what I'm understanding here is that they they honed their skills upon each other to for, piggybacking off what the the last card was was saying. Um, correct. Yep. Um, they okay. they found a loophole. So okay. sword that's logic. why I was gathering. Right. Sword logic, you have <laughs> yeah. to you know, you have to kill. Well right. they they found out, hey, you can kill me in the physical world, my body just snaps over to the throne world and I come back over and you can kill me again and you know, we just yeah, we don't really die. Mm, okay. but, that's what I thought that was going on, but I was just like, Am I understanding this right? Yeah, they so, found a okay. they found a loophole in the system, basically. Um and I know and just real quick, I know a lot of people have kind of made the comment of, you know, in this in this amoral world of, you know, extreme Darwinism, extreme survival of the fittest, you know, what is is there a place for love, you know, in the sense of, you know, you know, familial love or anything like that? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense of what you abstractly call love, but no in the sense of what humans would identify as love. Their concept of love, the hive's concept of love, is this right here. They they kill each other in in infinity. <laughs> they just you know, they just it's just a they they give because via sword logic, by killing and by being killed 
they, they either gain strength or give strength to one another. And so they support each other. That's how they grow. And that's kind of the demented logic of sword logic. So I did just want to, I wanted to just toss that out because I saw there was a question. I think Kashin tossed that question up in chat earlier. Well, it makes it makes sense because you wouldn't really be, in my mind, see the hive in those that practice sword logic having that sense of love. I would see that that they would deem that as a form of weakness. You know, like why would you, you know, sacrifice yourself or do this for someone else when you should be the one being the victor? perpetuating on you know like that person is weak so it makes sense that in their warped world that this is their version of of support and 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 quote-unquote love so and it makes it makes you wonder if this is something that is just among the sisters or is this something that is seen throughout the rest of the hive too you know like i i would say that it's seen Yes, I think that it's seen yeah. throughout the rest of the hive, especially in the ascendant ranks. Because again, remember, the ascendant mm-hmm. ranks have these throne worlds, so they right. they, they have this loophole. And then you have the court, the entire court of orcs. You know, which we we will get a little bit later. Um, like especially with the whole tithing process of how you know how that gets passed and how orcs kind of is like, yeah, you know. I really can't support the worm anymore, so you're going to help me. And the reason why is because if you don't help me, I die and the culture dies. So mm-hmm. you want to survive, we're impl- we're implementing the pyramid, pyramid scheme. Go. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I'm trying to think. Do is, is there anything else we wanted um. to... I'll put one quick thing in that I think uh, I think that this ties into that whole Stranger Things upside down universe thing too, because their concept of love is essentially literally the opposite of True. the entire rest of the universe. Right. I mean, I think. I mean, yes, but no, in the sense that they're they're reasoning within the parameters of their of the paradigm that they exist like you know they they have a very particular world and the reason i get the feeling that the reason behind it is akin to the same reason that that we would love but the expression of those reasons is the polar does that make sense yeah like the mm-hmm. paradigm that they exist within demands that they have to do these certain things, and that paradigm is is the is the polar opposite of what our paradigm is, and so their expression of the same feeling is gonna be manifested differently. Right. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm like, did that 
am I am I going off my rocker on this one? So <laughs> yes, but, but yeah, you're also right. Yeah, we're following you. We're equally falling off Yay. that rocker at the same time. <laughs> All right do we do we want to go to the next fragment? Sure, sure. And I believe that one is star by star by star. Yes, it is. And that is me. All right. Beneath a green fire and fire sky in the throne world of King Oryx, our lords embrace. We the Hive have watched as Savathun puts her arm around Zivu Arath, and Zivu Arath clasps forearms with Oryx, and Oryx takes Savathun by the shoulders. They are huge, huge, and they burn with furious power. But this embraces weakness, and we despise it. Never before have we despised our lords. Have they failed us? We the Hive have been driven back, world by world. I am at my end, Savathun says. I plot and plan, but I cannot gather enough bloodshed to feed my worm. And the harder I try, the hungrier it becomes. I slaughter and kill, Zivurath says. But the harder I fight, the more my worm demands. I too am at my end. The Ecumene war angels have killed me so many times, Oryx says, that I dare not go into the universe, lest I need my might to protect myself. My worm chews at my soul in hunger. Is this the end of our crusade? Are we, the hive, unworthy to exist? Zivu Arath puts down her great hand. We should retire and gather our strength. Savathun closes her eyes in puzzled defeat. We should beg the worm, our god, to tell us what to do. But King Oryx, who knows best the beauty in the final shape, roars at them. Have you learned nothing? Would you deny our purpose? Whatever we do, we will do by killing, by an act of war and might. That is the final arbiter we serve, the violent arbiter. And if we turn away from it, we deserve to be eaten. No, we must obey our natures. We must be long-sighted and cunning and strong. We must take this gift, the worm our god has given us, this challenge, and find a way to keep existing. How will we feed our worms? Sivorath asks. I know, says cunning Savathun. I know a way, but it won't work unless we are killing the Ecumeni by the billions. How can we beat them? If we cannot beat their strengths, says Sivorath, we must infect their weaknesses. But they are lords of matter and physical law. I know a way, King Oryx says, but it will require great power, more power than any one of us can claim. Then kill me, says Sivorath, and use that killing logic, the power you prove by killing something as mighty as me. So King Oryx took his blade and beheaded Sivorath. And strangle me, says Savathun, holding a blade behind her back. Use the ca- that killing logic, the cunning you prove by killing something as smart as me. But King Oryx turned with the speed of might, speed and might of Zivorath and beheaded Savathun before she could move. King Oryx was first navigator with the map of death. These were true deaths, for they happened in the sword world. Then he went to the worm named Daka. So this one's pretty relevant because it's the, I mean, it leads into, uh, him taking them and it's it's that's the plan right to 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 work at their weaknesses and take them i assume and use them against their their kindred mm-hmm. um in order to win the war i um, mean this also ties into the thing i said earlier in that the, the to to properly honor the sword logic it's it's win or die there's no there's no defensive tact there's either i can beat everything in the universe or i don't deserve to be here that right to exist that they mentioned. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, in, this is also, you know, like what we were just talking about, the setting up of the, the first steps, which lead to that pyramid scheme that, um, allows this, the hive culture to continue existing as well. 
Right. Yeah, because the Vex, I mean, the Ecumene, we're just giving them what for. Nice. Sorry. I see what you did there. (laughs) That was, Freud was right. Um, Well played, sir. Well played. Do we want to move on to? I believe next is the uh, King of Shapes, right? Mm-hmm. All right. And um, this is where we have after Orcs killed his sisters. Verse 3, 8, King of Shapes. This is the coronation of Orcs, the Taken King. It happened thus. In the cold abyss of the sword world, King Orish walked under the cloak of green fire. He walked through the sky, and the sky shuddered and froze beneath his feet. He walked until he found Akka, the Worm of Secrets, who was denying the truth until it became a lie. Akka, my god, Worm of Secrets, I am Oryx, sole king of the hive. I have come to receive a secret. I want the secret power of the deep, which you hold. I give no secrets, said Akka, whose voice was code. No, said Oryx, you give nothing. Giving is for the sky. You worship the deep, which asks that we take what we need. Akka said nothing, because if denied this truth, the truth might become false. But you gave us your larvae, the worm, said Oryx. And that is why the worm devours us now. Because it was was given, not taken. So, I must take what I need from you, although you are my god. Said Akka, you have not the strength. But this was a lie. Oryx had killed Savathun, his sibling, and Zivu Arath, his sibling. And he had the sword logic of killing them. The Oryx, the first navigator, set upon his god with his sword and his words, and cut Akka to pieces and took from those pieces the secret of calling upon the deep. He wrote the secret on a set of tablets, which he called the Tablets of Ruin, and he wore them around his waist. Then Org said, Now I may speak to the deep, the beautiful final shape. I will be the king of shapes, and I will learn all the secrets from our destiny. His speech to the deep is not recorded here, but it is known that he returned, And he said, now I am Orcs, the Taking King, and I have the power to take life and make it my own. Then he went out into the universe and fought the Yusameen with his tablets, and the worms his god was pleased. The worm his god was pleased. I apologize. So that shows that even though he called Akka his god, he was still worshipping one of the other worms. And... You know, that's that's pretty much where, obviously, Oryx becomes the Taken King because he, he found a way to trick Akka to where you could kill him and use his knowledge to actually talk to the Deep himself. Thoughts, anyone? No, I think you summed it up pretty well. I think that's exactly it, right? He He took their power to some extent and... It seems like they wanted him to. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <clears throat> trying to think. 
No, I just, something just hit me like a ton of bricks. The whole sword logic is, uh, it's, it's flawed logic. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, do you remember when we did a couple weeks back and we defined the term <sighs> syllogism? You know, you know how syllogism, a syllogism is, is kind of a, a way of logically thinking that is, that is incomplete or it relies on incomplete data. And so at the end it's, it's, it's flawed. It's almost like saying, um, um, dogs are animals and dogs have four legs. So all animals have four legs. Um, this is kind of this way of thinking where you say you are this powerful. I defeated you. So I must be more powerful than you. In this case, it's not necessarily the, it's not necessarily the, the case, you know, they, they kind of offered it up on a silver platter for him. And they take this, this sword logic and, you know, whether it's, it's a physical power or just, you know, I don't know how that works. And then it empowers orcs to be able to then further, you know, do what he has to do. What do you think about that? I think that's pretty accurate. Just hit me. It's it's not really logical at all. Well, it's it's sort of yeah, I, I agree. It's sort of by its nature meant to not be like nobody's supposed to think deeply about it. Right? It definitely mm-hmm. applies cuz like the minute Oryx does, he's like, "Ah, oh, man, we screwed up." Right? You know, our worms are killing us, right? And this isn't this isn't the card that's an example of that cuz in this one he's like, "No, it's good. This is this is the way things should be, right? If we can't feed our worms, we die." But there are times at which he sort of realizes, you know, how how deeply screwed they are, um, and how this is how difficult it is going to be to overcome this hole they've thrown themselves into, and to some extent refuse to look out of. Right, and I think the emphasis there is that they refuse to look out of. Because anything anything can make perfect sense if you don't look at if you don't look outside the blinders. Right? I mean an imperfect an imperfect picture, if you look at it with only the parts that have been finished, or an unfinished picture, if you only look at pieces that have been finished and you refuse to look at the unfinished pieces, to you it per- it's perceived as being a finished piece of work. But if you if you pull back and you look at the bigger picture, you'll notice that there's holes in the logic. It's it's you know the the Plato's cave, the the shadows on the wall. Um, to the people who are chained and looking at the shadows, that's that's the reality. That is all that they know. And if that's all that you know, your your paradigm is going to be that. Whereas those who exist in a different paradigm when they're confronted with that it's it's also a matter of you know when when our guardians go up against the hive and against the sword logic i get the sense that we're actually one of the first times that they've been they've walked face first into a wall where it's like no no it's not that's not the way of the world and it's the thing is is like up until the point that they run into the guardians really they've been able to steamroll things 
you know, the, the Traveler but, never really fought back. You know, the Elixir. Yeah, the Ecumen. Well, but the Traveler the didn't either. It always ran, right? When, and so now all of a sudden they're walking in, they're walking and all of a sudden they're getting pushed back and they're being pushed back by people who aren't necessarily following the sword logic, but they, but they have the strength to follow the sword logic, but they choose not to in the sense of, in the sense of the worm pact, they, they choose not to be the, the, the strong is right. I think is kind of the. Well, and I think that's I think that that's an important concept, and I think a good choice of words, and I think probably one of Oryx's frustrations is that we are strong, and I think that the Hive have repeatedly demonstrated that despite their victories, they are not necessarily strong, mm. um, and that they like they 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 have artificial strength. Um, a lot of it in a lot of different ways, but it's not true strength, right? They don't right. have strength of character. They don't. They're not particularly strong-willed. Um, well, yeah, the majority of them aren't. Yeah, I would say pretty much none of them are. Right? Oryx doesn't stand his ground on any of the the sort of That's positions true. he takes against the the worms, right? Um, yeah, that's. I mean, I mean, except for, I mean, except for this one card right here, where he and he deceives Akka. But even that, he kind of tricks Akka, right? He because he he basically goes up to Akka and pins him with with words, right? Which he got from right. Savathun, I assume. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a it's not a, a strong victory. It's sort of trickery. It's sort of right. Uh-huh. Which- yeah, you can't, and, you can't deny me, or you you make everything you're you're you love in life a lie. Which is an interesting thing about that is he used the I mean because that's and that's kind of what we did to him. You know, we we pinned him with his own light. We used the light that he was feeding himself to to become more powerful, and we when we freed it within him, and it explodes. Right. So I mean, because we okay. we don't actually kill him. It's the it's the light going off inside of his his little tummy that decides right. to punch a hole in him. Um, I mean, but that also makes the point too that sword logic again. You know that misnomer that we were talking about. It's not just the sword. It's it's survival. It's you are left standing. But yeah, you want to you want to grab majestic, majestic. I believe that's uh, Justin. Oh yeah, sorry about that. I was muted. I had a whole intro to the card. Um, <laughs> verse four two, majestic, majestic. Orcs, my king, my friend, kick back, relax, shrug off that armor, set down that blade, roll your burdened shoulders, and let down your guard. This is a place of life, a place of peace. Out in the world, we ask a simple, true question. A question like, can I kill you? Can I rip your world apart? Tell me the truth, for if I don't ask, someone will ask it of me. 
and they call us evil. Evil means socially maladaptive. We are adaptiveness itself. Ah, orcs, how do we explain it to them? The world is not built on the laws they love, not on friendship, but on mutual interest, not on peace, but on victory by any means. The universe is run by extinction, by extermination, by gamma ray bursts burning up a thousand garden worlds, by howling singularities eating up infant suns. And if life is to live, if anything is to survive, through the end of all things. It will not live by the smile, but by the sword. Not in a soft place, but in a hard hell. Not in the rotting bog of artificial paradise, but in the cold, hard, self-verifying truth of that one ultimate arbiter, the only judge, the power that is its own metric and its own source. Existence, at any cost. Strip away the lies and truces and decaying tactics they will call civilization and this is what remains the beautiful shape the fate of everything is made like this in the collision the test of one one praxis against another this is how the world changes one may one way meets a second and they discharge their weapons they exchange their words and markets They contest, and in doing so, they petition each other for the right to go on being something instead of nothing. This is the universe figuring out what it should be in the end, and it is majestic. Majestic is the only thing that can be true in and of itself, and it is what I am. (laughs) Yeah, so this is what her chain and chat uh, refers to as the orcs hypocrite card. So <laughs> who do we think is speaking? That's the million dollar question. <clears throat> Toland. <clears throat> I think that's a very, very, uh, this is as, as soothing as he's ever been. But, he's not but asking his... him to stay though. Well, <laughs> he is, he is he's telling him to take off his armor. And get comfortable. He's literally asking him to stay. Oh, I guess that's right. He already has the pizza rolls already. And... I got some Zaw in the oven. It'll be okay. <laughs> Come on. Um, it's, it's got his kind of weird, incoherent uh, speech pattern. And it's also, uh, I mean, it's got his kind of weird, snarky tone, too. I just really think yeah. that it's... It's it's also part of my theory that the the orbs helping us in King's Fall are not him. Um, I I think I think he basically visited his girlfriend and then, <laughs> uh, you know, went straight on to visit her boss. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I I love that it says evil means socially maladaptive. Um. And we're not evil. We're we're adaptiveness itself. Um, uh, what do you have, Willie? I was just going to point out that, um, well, once again, Dama threw me off track. I <laughs> hate to say it, but I actually have to agree with Damo as far as Toland goes. Um, <clears throat> God, that must have hurt. It, it did. <laughs> it hurts a lot, honestly. <laughs> Um, but, but it's true. Like the, the, the concept of sword logic, it's, 
they're showing right now that for them that that's the alpha way to go. Like you, you want to be the boss, killing everybody. If you can't kill them, you're not the boss. But once again, I'm going to go ahead and say this is one of the big things that we've talked about with Tolan. He is the only guardian that we know of right now that has actually spoken directly with the darkness. Um, he says that to, I want to say it was Ariana three. He told that he heard directly from the darkness itself, but he admits that he has actually spoken directly with it. He knows what it's like. It's personality. He is the only one other than orcs in game, whether it be enemy or friend that has spoken with the darkness directly. As far as we know right now, of course. Um, I, I just wanted to point that out. And yes, Damo, Tolan does speak a lot like the deep does, like the darkness does, which makes me fear for his sanity as well. But I still have faith in Osiris. I, th I think that if there's ever a Destiny movie, John Lithgow should play Toland. It's just I would think more George. like John Malkovich. Yeah, oh my one. goodness! <laughs> um, have you no, seen wanted... Have you seen Red? Just like I was thinking, Gary just transport the, his character from Red and and make him talk yeah. about the darkness instead of the CIA, and it's <laughs> we're done. Ship it. <laughs> I would watch that movie. Yeah, I would watch it for sure. Um, so. Having said that, I did want to define a term that was in that card. It talked about the testing of one praxis versus another. And I actually have to go for this one because I wasn't familiar. A praxis is actually the practice as opposed to the theory of how you do something. So it was just saying one way of doing things versus another way of doing things. Essentially. But other than that. You want me to go ahead and start with the next one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So open your eye. Go into it. Verse 4 9. Uh, this is a long one. <laughs> the Vex clattered around, constructing large problems. At first, their constructions were deranged because they didn't understand the sword logic, which defined all rules in Oryx's throne world. The geometry perplexed them. I'll cut them apart, Crota said. But just then, the Vex ritual of better thoughts manifested a mind called Coria, Blade Transform. Coria dedu deduced the sword logic. I have to kill everything, Coria solved, then I will be powerful. Curtis Gate began to emit warrior Vex, huge and brassy. He leapt forward to fight them, but they blinked away. After they fled from Crota, they killed 2,000 of Oryx's acolytes and 10,000 of his thrall. Soon they have established themselves as powers in the world by right of slaughter. Come forth, sister wizards, called Ir Halak. We need you. Ir Anuk pulled a sword star out of the sky. Together the wizards charged it with the killing power and made an, an annihilator totem, which they used to smash the Vex. Close the wound, brother Korda, Krota, Anuk ordered. 
We will find a cutting way to destroy them, but only after they stop constructing problems on us. Bakoria had instanced itself to the other side of the gate, built a hold fast to keep a way to keep the way open. Coria's objective was to exploit the paracausal physics of Oryx's throne to become divine. It organized a series of test invasions. For a hundred years of local time, the siblings fought the Vex. When the Vex came into the sword, wor- sword world, they were inevitably annihilated. But when the Hive went into the Vex world, they lost too much of their power to win. Father's going to eat our souls, Halak sighed. Coria captured some worm larvae and began experimenting with them. Soon, Coria, Blade Transform manifested religious tactics. By directing worship to the worms, Coria learned it could alter reality with mind, oh, this is a big word, ontopanathogenic effects. Being in an effective machine, Coria manufactured a priesthood and ordered all its subminds to believe in worship. And then it set about abducting and killing dangerous organisms so it could bootstrap itself to hive godhood. For some vex reason, Coria never attempted to introduce warm lava into its mind fluid. Sabathun was laughing because she had tricked Kuroda into cutting that place. This drew the attention of the worm, the worm our god. Oryx called Aaron, set your house in order. So... This is, uh, it's really interesting that the the Vex trying to adapt sword logic, but the fact that Quora didn't actually put the, the worm larva into its fluid mind, to me, signals that they actually were able to see the flaws of sword logic and didn't want all, all, all of them to be subjugated to that because they knew it was flawed so um but uh but yeah you guys want to add more on to this interesting little little tidbit of information i think it's worth (laughs) noting here that uh this is probably the genesis of atheon Mm -hmm. um, because we know that he worshiped or not Atheon, the 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 non-Atheon camp that we fought, uh, because we know they worshipped the darkness. So this is probably, soul. yeah, soul this logic. is probably how they mm-hmm. started that process. Mm-hmm. Um, which shows a schism in the Vex that we don't usually see. Yeah. Any. Anyone else? Or do you want to go on to the next, the last card um, for Book of Stars? I, I'm just happy that uh, Orcs, or Crota threw a party while Orcs was away and then he got in trouble. <laughs> he, got in, he got in some pretty serious trouble. Yeah. Dad's going to find out. <laughs> Dad found out. <laughs> I also think it's worth noting that wherever the Vex are, the sword logic was actually not just, like, diminished, but completely ineffective there. Like, enough that they couldn't even begin to think about invading, even though they have no mm-hmm. qualms with invading real space. So, I don't know if that means that real space is scarier than we may have been led to believe by the Hive, or if the Vex actually, if that might mean a, a shadow dimension, sort of like the Vogue. Um, where things are a bit different because the Vex have created a, their own little realm. 
Well, it would it would stand to reason that a a, a world derived from the logic of its creators would impose on it on its inhabit on its visitors and inhabitants that logic, right? Right, and that's kind of what I'm saying. Is it a vex created one, or is it simply a normal dimension where the hive are are much weaker? Um, because if you notice in our dimension, actually, Oryx is much weaker. We beat him right. with one person right. in the first part. Um, well, and whereas... I mean, again, because because the um, no, I'm gonna get myself in trouble. Um, so if you if you know the lot the the concept of what what's called basically hermeneutic phenomenology um it's it's basically a a philosophical explanation of how we what's called co-create the the world in which we exist um and and kind of the the reason why I'm so interested in the netherverse or the throne worlds or the sword space whatever they want to call it is because in reality and in real space right there there are there are laws there are immutable physical laws now paracausality begs the question of that but throwing out those um if you if you follow those laws like if i if i'm looking at something and let's say i'm looking at a tree right i see the tree if I can convince myself that the tree is not there in reality, and I, I try to walk through that space, even though I don't perceive the tree, reality would dictate that that tree is still there, right? It will stop me from walking through that space. Right. Whereas, and that's reality. So that's where, you know, Oryx is weaker because no matter what he is, he is still a slave to those laws. Right. He he cannot he cannot rewrite physical laws within reality. However, in his throne world, he makes the laws. So if he decides that the tree isn't there, the tree just is gone. Right. And that's why when when the Vex like punch through and they get into this this throne world and they're like, We don't understand the geometry of this world. That's what it's talking about. They don't understand psychomutable realities. They only they only understand physical mutable realities. Um, Bife, Bife did a really good short explanation of this. Like you know, psychomutable. When we when we say psychomutable, um, that is literally something that you can change the reality via your your power of will. Um, normally, if I needed to remove something, I would have to pick it up and move it. In a psychomutable reality, you just think it, and it's gone. So it's literally your imposition of your will on that reality. The Vex, what this shows is that the Vex have not punctured that type of reality in all their travels up until this point. Now, once they've understood the geometry, that makes them even more terrifying. It also begs the question of, this might have been when they started creating things like the Vault, because they're they're now understanding the geometry of throne worlds. They're understanding the geometry of the space between realities. Um, and so now, if they understand that geometry, they can deduce and recreate it. 
which is kind of where you get, you know, that vault of glass esque, the black garden esque type of portals and stuff like that. Um, but to pull to pull back into this, that's that's where, you know, it makes it makes sense that they would be weaker in in our reality than they would be in their throne world. Right. So. Yeah, the the entire concept of a psychomutable reality is um, it's so intriguing. But I could I could spend hours talking about that. No, could you? So let's move on to let's move on to something that we have strict proof eternal of. Oh, oh. All right, I can do that. All right. Strict proof eternal. I have a gift for you, says Oryx. Savathun, witch queen, looks at him with dry wariness. Is it sword logic I need to go into the deep and take your power for myself? Their echoes move among the war moons, walking together on the whole of a 2,000-year-old warship. Savathun's fleet has assembled here in preparation for an assault on the gift mast. The deep is headed that way on the trail of its prey, and the hive will be its vanguard. It's a vex I captured. Quiria, blade transform. It made an attempt to puncture my throne. I thought you might enjoy studying it. Oric pauses, digesting through the bond of lineage she can feel Crota killing worlds and worlds away, and it tastes like sweet fat. Quiria contains a Vex attempt to simulate me. It might generate others. You, perhaps. Razivu Arath. I've left it with some will of its own, so it can surprise you. I suppose it'll blow up and kill me, Savathun grouses, or let the machines into my throne, where they'll start turning everything into clocks and glass. If it kills you, then you deserve to die, Oryx says with a quiet thrill. A happy thrill, because it is good to say the truth. I don't have strict proof yet, you know. Savathun strokes the void with one long claw, and space-time groans beneath her touch. This thing we believe, that we're liberating the universe by devouring it, that we're cutting out the rot, that we're on course to join the final shape, I haven't found a strict eternal proof. We might yet be wrong. Oryx looks at her, and for a moment, just a moment, he is nostalgic, he is sentimental. He thinks... Imagine the years behind us, the things we've done, and yet being old doesn't feel like a scar, does it? It hasn't left me dull. I feel alive, alive with you, and every time I step back into this world for my throne, I feel like I'm two years old again, at the bottom of the universe, looking up. But he says, sister, it's us. We're the proof. We the hive. If we last forever, we prove it. And if something more ruthless conquers us, then the proof is sealed. She looks back at him with eyes like hot needles. I like that, she says. That's elegant. Although, of course, she has had this thought before. So this is an interesting card because it it really upends or not upends, but it, it, it adds some shadows to a lot of the previous stuff about uh in the Books of Sorrow. Um it's got some a uh, weird rationalization sort of solidifying thought from Oryx. He's convincing himself maybe that the tr- that this is the truth and it feels good to say the truth. Like maybe this isn't the truth, but he he really needs to think that, and it shows that Savathun is not anywhere near um, as as deep into the Kool Aid as Oryx is, right? She has she has big doubts here. She's like, I don't I don't know if our path is the right path. I don't know if we're doing the right thing. Yeah, I mean, I I <laughs> sorry, I had a frog in my throat. <laughs> it's fine. I, I but I think that it's important because I think Savathun 
like there's a lot of of supposition that we'll see Oryx's sisters at some point. And I think it's worth noting that we might not see Sabathun as a villain or an antagonist. Um, there's every chance that she's drinking somebody else's Kool-Aid and that she she may not like the worm path and may want out of it. We, we don't know. Um, but there's, there's a lot of that stuff. And there's the book that we didn't read tonight, but there's a book that um, I believe it's her. Do we know that it's her that vandalizes the, the book of sorrow that yes. is vandalized? Yeah, she graffitis him. Um, so, well, yeah, yeah, we think it's her, but it could be someone yeah. else pretending. Basically, one of the books is vandalized, indicating that the books are are lies, um, which might indicate that they're more rationalization and and sort of forced thought from Oryx in an attempt to, you know, keep himself on path, um, instead of you know as we were saying earlier, instead of debating what he's doing and trying to figure out if this is right, or he's just sort of reinforcing his thought patterns and assuming that he's right. Right. And, and I wanted to point out real quick, Savathun is actually one who followed the worm God the most, um, leading up to the krill becoming the hive. Like it was Savathun who was listening to the worm when it said, don't sell the ship, use the ship to dive deeper, you'll find us. So, um, what that has to do with sword logic is just a simple fact of how things went with the hive. But I want, I just wanted to go on record and say that um, it, it was Savathun that pretty much followed the worm even better than orcs did up until the point to where he killed her in Zivu or Wrath and took their power, of course. Anyone else? Uh, I would agree with that in that I think she is uh, the smartest of the sisters, right? That, that, that seems to track with their roles and their true natures as, as such. Um, but what I think is interesting about that is that generally speaking, it's easier to enslave people who aren't quite so smart. And so maybe that's why there's a crack in her devotion um, because things like things aren't lining up, right? Things aren't working out uh, the way they kind of thought they might. And so now maybe she's like, Hmm, well I might need to hedge my bets. Cause she, unlike Zivu or Roth in the previous card we read, she was not going to give up her life Willingly, right? She the, the the passage said she had the dagger behind her back. She was mm-hmm. intending to kill Oryx instead, and even here, she wants to steal his power rather than kind of let him let him take it. You know, continue to hold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, that kind of goes back to what I think Justin was saying too earlier about the incomplete logic. Right. And that's why I was saying he has to reinforce it. He has to convince himself. Uh, Mel, did you have something? Yeah. You guys kind of sort of touched on it, but I feel like the line where they're saying sister, assess where the proof, blah, 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 blah. 
it almost feels kind of condescending to me in the sense that they're kind of realizing, okay, yeah, if we go and we sort of logic and we kill everything, we cut out the rot, all we have left is us and our worms. And it's kind of being them saying like, okay, yeah, we'll live forever and kind of acknowledging the fact, well, if we actually follow through with this plan, we won't live forever because we still have to find a way for our, our, our to get rid of the worms. You know, they will devour us. If there's no one left to devour, then what do we do? They're going to devour us. And they're, and therefore if they are the strongest, they will always be the strongest. And I feel like this whole entire little bit of conversation is them kind of playing at the fact that they kind of know that this is kind of what's going to be going on, that they're, they're like, we guys were pointing out earlier that this is not actual, like there's not, actual logical you know that there's there's holes to this logic there's fallacies to it so that's all i had to add <laughs> yeah and i just wanted to make the point that Arath, not Arath, i'm sorry sabathun um constantly probing and trying to out like outsmart the worms and maybe not just blindly um drinking the kool-aid the, the kool-aid as damo put it I think that's completely in line with her nature and as such is, is actually honoring the worm pact. Like I think, I think if she wasn't doing all these things and if she wasn't skeptical, you know, if she just accepted everything at face value, like say Jeeva Rath, who who's just a war machine, essentially, um, she wouldn't be in compliance with her worm pact. And I think that's what we're seeing here is she's, you know, she's never going to be completely sold because she knows the end game, I, be- I believe, or has a has a good has a good feeling about what it may be. Uh, well, I, I agree uh, that I think you're 100 percent right. I think her nature is the worm is potentially the worm's undoing with regards to her um, because it, they can't sustain that as easily as they can, you know, war or navigating which is kind of a a stranger concept but like you can't you can't sustain it as easily right the inquisitive nature the need to understand everything and the need to see all the angles is a much harder path to control right to keep them in line than it is uh, than the other ones I would, yeah. I mean, and I think, I think that kind of, I think that really hits on why it's so difficult for Oryx, especially, but also possibly why it gets to a point where he sets up the structure the way he sets it up so that it's easier for him, you know, because ultimately when he's done setting it up, the sword logic is met. Um, you know, the worm pact is the worm pact is met, the sword logic is being met because the the hive are still surviving. Um and everything's pretty much you know, pretty pretty good. Um and you know, there's that's that is the one final thing I did have here is there's the the quote on Dreadfang. And it kind of ties into the um, 
the whole concept of sword logic in the sense that that says, Kingly brother, I thank you for the gift of your failure. The sword logic demands a pinnacle. And so, you know, again, it's that iteration of the sword logic demands that it is, that there is something at the top, that there is a final shape. There is something that is the victor. And I kind of, you know, I kind of want to close out with the summary that we got from the game for game informer articles, you know, recently there was, there was actually a blurb about the sword logic and it kind of, it kind of defines it in the, in the sense of everything that we've kind of been talking about here too, is in, in that kind of, yeah, this is what it is, but we don't really answer what it is. Um, and the, and the quote is, says the sword logic is the guiding philosophy for the hive a sort of metaphysical principle that justifies the horrific actions across the universe as guided by the worms the hive value killing as the greatest act and the path to becoming stronger through killing the hive justify their purpose as the strongest entities further honing the universe into a desired final shape those that are cut away are not strong enough to be part of that ultimate nature of the universe, and by the sword logic, they deserve to be cut away. Through this principle, the hive are able to garner ever greater power for themselves and even carve out their own personal dimensions, which they call throne worlds. That's the end of the quote. And so again, you know, not not amazingly detailed, but at the same time, it does kind of, I mean, confirm everything that we've roundabout been saying on this on this episode this chat um i i mean we we covered pretty much everything that was talked about in chat we talked on the egocentrism versus allocentrism that those philosophies are very very prevalent especially with the king's fall raid um there there is a small thing that we talked about near the end of the chat too. And, and that kind of nods to the idea of that morality thing that we were talking about. Um, and it's kind of a thesis that is very prevalent within the vampire mythos, like the vamp, the vampires. Um, and that is the concept that death gives value to life. If you, if you don't have death, if you if you don't have to worry about dying, you don't put value on life. And that really explains why the hive kill with impunity. Like they just they just kill. They don't care because to them death isn't it's not anything to be worried about or concerned about. At least not to the ascendant the ascendant hive. If you remove if you remove that that final threat of death, eventually you lose the understanding of the value of life. And that's where the perverted justification for killing everything within the hive structure really comes from in my mind. I mean, think think back to the just taking the hive, thinking back to the krill. The krill only lived for 10 years. They were very obsessed with living for those 10 years, and they were very, very concerned with not may, not being able to do what they wanted to do within those 10 years. Now, fast forward, and you have Hive, who they've, they've lived for eons. They don't care. 
they're getting bored doing all this stuff. Um, and that's, and that was just another part of that worm pack conversation that we had. But other than that, I mean, everything really, we touched on everything. Um, I said, it's, I think it's time for some shout outs. Mm-hmm. Damo, you want to lead the charge? Um, mostly just uh shout out to you guys for and uh involving me in this chat it was pretty fun awesome well we really appreciate it i i do want to give uh two shout outs myself uh first shout out is to an episode that will be coming out on september 1st it is our cosplay behind the scenes episode with mel um, everyone, please be sure to give it a check or check it out. It was extremely fun to record, and we hope that you. Well, we we gave everyone in the Discord chat a chance to ans- ask their questions, and so we we hope that you guys enjoy that. I know we enjoyed recording it. Um, and then thank you again to all that were involved with the Destiny Community Con for this year, two thousand sixteen. Um, we had a blast. I, I'm literally cannot wait until next year. I'm counting down the days, trying to figure out what we're going to do and how we can make our involvement better. But thank you so much to the volunteers, the organizers, just the people who showed up. I mean, all of you really just, it it was an amazing experience. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand it off to Justin yeah yeah just uh (laughs) hype is in the red zone uh i'd like to thank damo for coming on being an awesome guest host and uh that's not just because he agreed with me an uncharacteristically demo amount (laughs) that's that's awesome (laughs) and uh i'd like to welcome mel uh having had you on a few times i'm really looking forward to having you on more and getting to kind of cruise through the lore. Um, a uh, big shout out to, I won't even try to start listing people at Destiny Community Con that I met. I actually got to to meet a few listeners and and that was really cool. Uh, if, if, you know, you were there, you know what I mean. Uh, so that was awesome. And a uh, shout out to my clan, DOD Shadow White Crew. Willie. Just wants to shout out. Well, my shout outs, as always, start with DODX1 Foxtrot. And Foxtrot in general for Dads of Destiny all seem like cool dudes. Um, a few of them recently got an Xbox One. So we've actually got to hang out with some of the PS4 admins and seem like cool dudes. Um, also, big shout out to Bungie for giving us an expansion that I'm very much looking forward to. The Rise of Iron looks very promising and can't wait until we get to dig into that more. And uh, I think, of course, oh, wait. Gotta throw my shout out to the the Cult of Pain. Um, Whoever you are running that Twitter, just keep doing it. It's great. I love it. That's it. 
Um, well, I just want to give a shout out to to actually the whole entire crew. Thank you for accepting me officially into here. Um, thank you to our guest today, Daniel. It was great talking to you and talking about lore. Um, and yeah, uh, I guess also check reminder, check out the cosplay podcast. We make funny jokes. They're not that funny. well with that we'll begin to wrap the chat up thank you again to those over on twitch for coming to spend the evening with us if you'd like to join us please be sure to give us a follow over on twitch.tv slash focus fire chat links to all our sites can also be found with our episode archives over on www.focusfirechat.com Thank you again to Damo for taking time to join us tonight. We're really looking forward to having you back on later. Please be sure to email us at focusfirechat at gmail.com with any feedback or questions concerning the podcast and let us know how we're doing by giving us some feedback on iTunes or through email as well. We try to keep to the scheduled Wednesday night streams of the chat starting at approximately 10 p.m. Central, but if we have any variations, we always make sure to let everyone know through our Twitter account at FocusFireChat. Also, please be sure to check out our partner podcasts within the Guardian Radio Network over on the guardiansofdestiny.com. So, until next time, focus your fire and may your light shine bright.